Hi everyone, it's Shakti Durga, and welcome to this episode of the Soul Talk podcast. Each episode is going to feature some of the highlights from live trainings, retreats, online classes, and presentations that I've done around the world. If you find value in it, please text the link to the podcast to a friend or share it with your networks. I look forward to connecting with you soon. Namaste. Virtually everyone I've ever met has quite severe self-criticism and judgment going on in the internal tapes. Do you agree? Yeah. And I've just been reading, or starting to read really, it's just the beginning of the discovery of this book, but it's um, Kristen Neff, who's a, she's got a doctorate, and she teaches on um, self-compassion. And this is her book on self-compassion. And it really fits with a lot of the things that I've been playing with myself over the last few years and, and looking at how um, compassion and judgment are opposites of each other in a way. And if we want to stop judging either ourselves or other people, that the cultivation of compassion is a really good way to go. And she's um, trained in um, Buddhism. She had a bit of a New Age mum when she was growing up and then she trained in Buddhism. And she recounts a story of a group of academics and business people going to visit the Dalai Lama in, um, in his home in Dharamshala, where we're going in March. And he was asked, what do you think about um, the whole notion of self-esteem? You know, why is it that people have problems with their self-esteem in the West? And he said, what is this self-esteem? What, what is the problem? And they had to explain to him what low self-esteem even was because he didn't know, because he didn't have it, and it wasn't in his lexicon, which is amazing in itself, don't think. And then he said, so how many of you have got that? And they said, well, we all do. And every one of them did. And they were all very successful people and people who you'd think, well, they wouldn't have anything to feel low self-esteem about, and yet they still did. And so this uh, is a very fascinating area, really, of how we become deluded, I believe. And in my own journey with this issue of how we talk to ourselves, I've noticed that it seems to come in waves about the way we speak negatively to ourselves. Do you agree? And when we do that, we start to spin that negativity outwards. And sometimes it's like, well, I don't want to feel this bad about myself, so I'm just going to feel it about you. And before you know it, what you're doing is projecting some kind of atrocity onto someone near you. You know, you've got a bad day and you're just grumpy and you're externalising what that person's doing wrong rather than owning what we ourselves a feeling. Does anyone relate to that? No. <laughs> Not something any of us would do, is it? We'd never be grouchy with someone else when we ourselves were feeling a bit lacking in some way. Anyway, in this book, she also talks about how then what people often do is try and build their self-esteem. And there's um, something, again, that we've been talking about here for some years, that self-esteem and self-love are not the same thing. And if you're going to choose one of them, it's best to choose self-love because self-esteem can become like an edifice that is uh, a crumbling cliff over an ocean, you know? 
It's like I have to maintain this visage of what a great person I am. I have to seem like I don't have any problems and everything's fine with me. And I've got to convince myself and everyone else that everything's fine. How are you? Fine? How's everything going? Fine? You know, and it's, it can isolate us from other people. And it's not real. And it leaves us in a state of terror. And then when something goes wrong, which in every life that's going to happen, then it knocks our self-esteem completely asunder because whatever it was that just happened doesn't accord with what would be my vision, my vision of myself having good self-esteem would be successful, would be um, always nice to everybody, would be... You know, think of all the ways that we judge ourselves. I'd be like this. I'd be making this much money. I'd be, my body would look like this. This would happen. I'd, you know, all the different things. Are you with me? Yes. Making sense, isn't it? Anyway, so um, they were even talking about how having, in this book, having high self-esteem or aiming for that uh, is, is about really can fall into wanting to be better than other people. And in our spiritual mastery program, we often talk about how arrogance or wanting to be better than someone is exactly the same as low self-esteem. It's just, it's the same paradigm. It's just how you play it out. So people who would relate to, I've got low self-esteem, often doubt themselves, don't have confidence to do anything. But it's still low self-esteem that causes us to be arrogant in a way. Do, do you get what I mean? It's I have, to be, I have to be better than everyone else so I can feel okay about myself. And in the book she talks about how we can set ourselves these perfect targets so that I'm going to be, you know, the best in my year, I'm going to get the best grades, I'm going to have the best job, I'm going to fit into a size zero dress. I mean, what is a size zero dress anyway? But anyway, apparently they have in America. And then they talk about their weight ballooning out to, to be a size six Size six doesn't even register in my awareness of what does that mean. It seems like something would fit a poodle. <laughs> anyway, um, you know, I've become a size six, isn't it terrible, is a way of telling the world that you're such a great person because usually you're a size zero. Do you know what I mean? It's like this false, um, it's, a, it's still false, but it's, it's a way of justifying what a great person you are because you hold yourself accountable to such a high ideal that even when you drop below it, I can criticise myself for it, but most people still go, you're what? You're amazing. You know, you're still getting, you're amazing even when you're talking to yourself. Is this making any sense? And so, again, it's like a way of um, creating a sense of superiority over others. I'm not like that. I hold myself to this high accountable. And so we separate ourselves from each other. And then if we can't meet our visage of perfection, then the internal voice starts to get extremely judgmental and critical and starts to rip shreds off us. And then it'll wake us up in the middle of the night and be ranting about this, that or the other thing. And if it's not about ourselves, then it starts to be projected as someone else. Who's had that happen? All of us at some stage, hey? Yeah. And so I've been thinking a bit about this lately and how as you progress on a spiritual path and climb the spiritual mountain, which is a great metaphor, I actually am not certain that that necessarily goes away very quickly. 
In fact, I think that as your energy and consciousness expands, we become more aware of more of the nuances of what we like about ourselves, but also what we may not like about ourselves. And we can sort of feel worse for a while before we start feeling more self-acceptance. And that feeling, feeling our feelings and feeling what it's like to really face something can, can put us in a really bad place. And then if we don't have compassion for ourselves and we've been trained in judgment, then not only do we feel bad about whatever it's, it was that's happened to us, but then we load it up with thick icing of self-judgment. And so what we end up with is a poisonous cake that's been baked of, you know, what went wrong is enough for us to try and accept, but all the judgment from ourselves is just poison. And it makes any problem we might have a hundred times worse than it would be if we could just be more inquisitive and more, oh, wow, that's fascinating, look at that. Um, what am I going to do with that? And so I'm really playing with that whole thing at the moment and looking at it. I said this before a few weeks ago, but I went to a seminar uh, that was held down in Sydney uh, some weeks ago where a teacher in Sydney called Kerwin Ray was sharing a, an amazing program about business development and so forth. But just one little thing that he said was about those times when we are feeling that inner voice undermining us and how it really could be seen also as the voice of the ego. And what's the ego trying to do? It's trying to help us survive in some way. And it has all these strategies. I'm better than, you know, is one of its strategies. It's someone else's fault is another one of its strategies because then I get to be blameless and the ego does never like to be blamed for anything. And then he talked about all the doubts and fears that assail us when we want to try and do something. Or even if we try and go into unity with someone, then, you know, you can have it with your spiritual teacher. Suddenly all you can think about is some little thing the teacher said or did that you didn't like, and you forget about all the radiant glory and beauty of all the things you've learned and been told and shared by the teacher and all the light of the teacher, and you get this one thing that's annoyed you, and it just separates us completely from our teacher. And I've experienced this in my own life and then turned it around and realised that whatever it was that I was obsessing about was only just a little product of my own ego not wanting to be in unity because egos aren't designed for unity. They're designed to be the vehicle of our seemingly separate life here on Earth. So it's quite a job to get through all of this chunky stuff and come to a place where we <laughs> can deal with it. Anyway, one of the other things that the ego likes to do is not be a tall poppy not stand out in any way. And this fellow, Kerwin Ray, um, he was saying that he thinks it's because your ego wants you to hide in the middle of the pack that you're a mammal and that mammals are herd animals and that if you're in the middle of the herd, if you're on the tundra and you're a zebra or something, then you're safe in the middle of the herd. But if the lions come, who do they eat? They don't eat the ones in the middle, they eat the stragglers, the ones that are too far out the front or too far out the back or too far out the sides, they're the ones that become lunch for some lion. And so his view was that your ego is always trying to sabotage you in a way that stops you being your unique, amazing self because your uniqueness is perceived by the ego as taking you out of the herd and therefore will lead to you being eaten probably by a lion or a saber-toothed tiger.
And so these might be vestiges of an old time, but I think now the jungle is less to do with the tundra and more to do with the inner jungle, don't you think, and the stress and, the, and just trying to live the lives that we aspire to. If I could just give this simple um, example that she gives in her book about how would you even define what compassion is? Because a lot of us may have trouble because the nebulous thing, we know what judgment is, but compassion can be harder. And a lot of people fear that if I get compassionate, I'm going to be just a dweeb, I'm going to be a pushover and, and I won't uh, have any boundaries anymore and I won't, um, I won't succeed. But her research, because she's an academic, she's done all this research to show that in fact the opposite's true, that when we have self-compassion, we end up being more successful and um, having more friends and, and feeling better about ourselves. And it's been a revolution in her life and many others. Anyway, here's what she says about to recognise when you're not in compassion when you could be. She says, imagine you're stuck in traffic on the way to work and a homeless man tries to get you to pay him a buck for washing your car windows. Who's had that happen? We've all, a lot of us have. He's so pushy, you think to yourself. He'll make me miss the light and be late. He probably just wants the money for booze and drugs anyway. Maybe if I ignore him, he'll just leave me alone. Who's been annoyed by one of those people? Yeah? I used to get annoyed by them. Down in Sydney, they were on every second corner at one stage. Anyway, but he doesn't ignore you and you sit there hating him while he washes your window, feeling guilty if you don't toss him some money and resenting it if you do. Then one day, it's like he's struck by lightning. There you are in the same community traffic at the same light at the same time and there's the homeless man with his bucket and squeegee as usual. Yet for some unknown reason today, you see him differently. You see him as a person rather than just an annoyance. You see his suffering. How does he survive? Most people just shoo him away. He's out here in the traffic and the fumes all day and he can't be earning much. At least he's trying to offer something in return for the cash. It must be really tough to have people be so irritated with you all the time. I wonder what his story is and how he ended up on the streets. Can you feel the difference in the feeling just from that kind of inquiry? And she says, the, mo the moment you see the man as an actual human being who's suffering, your heart connects with him. And then instead of ignoring him, you find to your amazement that you're taking a moment to think how difficult his life might be, that you're moved by his pain and feel the urge to help him in some way. Importantly, if what you feel is true compassion rather than mere pity, you say to yourself, there but for the grace of God go I. If I'd been born in different circumstances or maybe had just been unlucky, I might also be struggling to survive like that. And so I think it puts us in touch with our vulnerability, you know and that that's what compassion does. But both vulnerability and compassion, there's loads of research now. It, it helps us in every single way in our life, helps our relationships, helps us with self-esteem, helps us succeed more in life than we ever could have imagined. And to me, there's nothing more quintessentially the root of our spiritual path than to develop both of these qualities, compassion and vulnerability. Because otherwise, everything else we do is, as the alchemists would say in ancient Egypt, a dry tincture, a false tincture. If you develop all the capacity under the sun and all these highfalutin tools and techniques and ways to do things, but you never develop the love and the compassion, it's a false tincture. Haven't really gotten anywhere. Does that ring true? Yes. 
Yeah. And I think that we need our spirituality in order to be able to develop and live in this state of compassion. Because otherwise it's too hard. We keep getting separated off again by our ego, which keeps telling us about all these ways we're not going to be safe and we get we, we just go into our smallness again. And we just get smaller and smaller until we just hate ourselves being so separate from anybody else. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Soul Talk. I hope the podcast has served you in creating a happier and more abundant life. If you've enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe, rate and leave a review on your favorite podcast app. If you'd like to connect with me, head over to shaktidurga.com. Honey,